Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lingdon. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin issued an executive order in June of 2022 creating an Office of Regulatory Management. The order instructed that office to develop regulatory review procedures to increase transparency, oversee a reduction in regulatory requirements, and streamline permitting approval processes. As part of that work, the office has published a new regulatory economic analysis manual. That manual will guide Virginia's agencies as they do cost-benefit analyses ahead of new regulatory initiatives. We're pleased to have Andrew Wheeler and Reeve Bull from the Office of Regulatory Management with us today to talk about the manual and how things are changing in Virginia. Andrew Wheeler is the director of the Office of Regulatory Management for the Commonwealth of Virginia. He was the 15th administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency and started his career as a special assistant in the EPA's Pollution Prevention and Toxics Office during the George H.W. Bush administration. Reeve Bull is the deputy director of the Office of Regulatory Management. He served as the research director of the Administrative Conference of the United States and as an appellate litigator at Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. We're also joined today by the Gray Center's co-executive director, Adam White. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jace. Welcome, Director Wheeler and Deputy Director Bull. Thank you for having us. Well, we're so glad you could join us today. This is a really interesting initiative out of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And given both of your uh, backgrounds uh, in federal regulation and administration, it makes this project and this conversation all the more interesting. So maybe we'll start from the very start. What led Governor Youngkin to issue the executive order uh, establishing review? And uh, I guess, how did it come about? Sure. Well, first of all, when Governor Youngkin was running running for office and traveling around the state, he her, he got a lot of um, feedback from businesses and just regular Virginians about the regulatory burden and how and how overburdensome it's become over over the years and just regulation piled on top of regulation and all the red tape and particularly from um, from businesses that were looking to expand in Virginia or locate to Virginia and Virginia has seen a um, a, a net migration out of the state over the last 20 years. So he's trying to figure out what we can do to encourage people to stay here, grow more businesses and grow more jobs. Um, and then you, on top of that, under state law, every um, governor must issue a, an executive order detailing the regulatory process within the first six months. And I will say that um, the regulatory process in Virginia, this is the first major overhaul since the George Allen administration back in the 90s. So we went a long time without really changing our regulatory process. And the governor looked at this when he got here and he, he looked at the regulatory state, how it was functioning and realized that there really needed to be some changes. Um, you know, on day one, he did a 20, he called for an executive order for a 25% reduction in the number of regulations. And then over the first six months, we refined that to be um, regulatory requirement reductions. Um, but he also discovered in getting here that um, we have 64 different state agencies and departments. 22 of those were exempt from having their regulations reviewed by the governor or the secretaries. And the, an agency could write a regulation and send it straight to the register for publication without anybody else reviewing the regulation. 
and then other agencies could get regulations exempt. So we ended up with half, with approximately half of our regulations with no review, and that included no cost impact analysis. So he really saw that as, as a problem that he wanted to fix with his executive order. Now, the order creates a process, or the well, the, the manual, which we'll get to in a second, creates a process, but the order itself creates an office, your Office of Regulatory Management. Could you tell us a little bit about that office, uh, what it does, and, and then maybe describe how the manual itself came about? Sure. Um, so the office itself, and we started off as a two-person office for the first six months, and then we doubled the size of our office this January. We're up to four people now. Um, and it's, we've, we've um, approached this purposefully to be a streamlined effort. Um, and we are trying to incorporate everything that we do into the structure of the state government so that, this, the, so that these are lasting changes that will last beyond this administration. And Virginia governors are restricted to one term. So, you know, we knew on day one that, that the governor was a lame duck in four years. So we wanted to make sure that what, whatever changes we instituted would still be around a generation from now. Um, and the executive order required our office to review every single regulation. As I said, half the regulations were exempt. They had no review by the governor's office. We now review every single regulation. Um, one of the main things that we review the regulations for is the cost impact analysis. But something that's completely different between state government and federal government. Um, when I was the EPA administrator, I had a whole office of economists, and they would write the economic impact analysis for our, our regulations. And uh, most of our um, media-specific offices, like the air office, the water office, had economists within their offices that would work on the regulations. Then the regulations were reviewed by our policy office with a team of economists who would do the, the economic impact analysis. Uh, but at the state level, um, there's very few, if any, economists in any of the state agencies. Um, they, they don't have economists. And there is a small team of economists within the, tr within the finance department that does a cursory review of the regulations, but they're limited in duration to reviewing a regulation for 20 days um, for a proposal and 40 days for a final. Um, so that very limited review, and they aren't just reviewing it for the cost impact, they're reviewing it across the board. So they didn't have time to do a cost benefit analysis or do a full-fledged full cost impact analysis. So what we did and what I, what I asked Reeve to, to take the lead on was creating a manual that could be used by a non-economist, someone without an economic degree. Um, in most cases, you know, most if you have a master's in public administration, you've at least taken an economics class. But they aren't economists who are drafting our regulations at the state level. Far different than the federal level. And so Reeve jumped in and put together a manual that I, I believe is going to be um, you know, the go-to manual for states across the country on how to conduct cost impact analysis for the non-economists. But that also benefits because if the non-economist is drafting it, that also means a non-economist public citizen or business can read it and understand it. We'll link the uh, the manual and the executive order into the uh, into the show notes. Uh, Reeve, you were going to say something? Uh, sure. So I just wanted to say just a bit on sort of the, the, the manual itself. So, you know, as Director Whaler mentioned, um, 
you know, our approach to this was to make it something that is is usable, that somebody who's not an economist can 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 pick up and, and easily use. And I think in some ways I was perhaps the perfect per- perfect person to write this because I'm kind of a dilettante myself, you know, in this space. The extent of my economics training consists of one macro course that I took in undergrad. So, um, you know, I've, I've written in the area and I've kind of picked it up, you know, over the years, especially during my time at ACUS. But uh, by no means am I sort of a- an expert, a PhD economist, you know, in the space. So with the manual, it's, it's intentionally designed in a way uh, that... Um, really simplifies it as much as possible and really sort of focuses on the fundamental issues. Um, In many ways, we tried to track OMB Circular A4 in terms of the structure of the manual, uh, but rather than sort of spending all of the time on, you know, how do you calculate benefits? How do you calculate costs? Some of these relatively complicated uh, undertakings that most federal agencies spend most of their time on, we really put the major focus on identifying the problem, looking at some of the alternative uh, approaches to regulation, uh, some of the possible alternative regulatory approaches. And then we also you know, urge agencies to quantify the benefits and the costs. But uh, the manual is written in a way to try to make that as straightforward and, and streamlined as possible. And I think you see that in the results. You know, um, as Director Wheeler mentioned, you know, the uh, Regulatory impact analyses at the federal level, you know, are often very, very complicated, very long, can run hundreds of pages. Uh, our forms, our ORM forms, tend to run about 10 pages or so. So it's much more streamlined. Uh, and I think that that not only works better for the agencies, but also makes it much easier for regulatory stakeholders uh, to pick these things up, understand them, and be able to, to weigh in meaningfully. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. And how long has or have state agencies had to wrestle with the manual? Have you gotten feedback from people who have tried to use this new process? Or is that coming in? Uh, so they, they've had it for about, uh, what, two or three months, I think, at this point. It was released uh, last December. Um Still sort of, I don't think we've gotten any specific feedback yet, um, but I, I think, you know, from what we've seen so far, I think the agencies, I've heard from at least a couple that they've um, they found it very useful, very valuable, and we're starting to see some of the uh, terminology, um, you know, in the manual itself start to turn up in the form. So the other day, for instance, uh, I saw in a form a reference to transfer payment, which is something that was in the manual itself. So I think they're starting to internalize it, starting to uh, think about their regulations within the framework that it creates. Um, and I think, you know, we're already seeing some, some, some real benefits uh, in the regulations itself, and I think we'll continue to do so over the next uh, next few months. I, I will say also, though, that um, as soon as it came out, we got a lot of um, a lot of thanks for putting it into clear language and being very direct on, on what we expected. Um, so, you know, I, I think they were literally hungry for this. You know, they, they wanted to know how to conduct cost impact analysis, how to do a cost benefit analysis. Um, and, and their, their managers, their, the, the um, agency heads, you know, we've heard, we've heard praise and thanks from them as well as the cabinet secretaries. So, you know, I think this has been well received and they, as Reef said, they, they're already starting to incorporate it in their analysis that they're sending to us. 
Great. As a non-economist myself, it was really good to read the manual in a way that you still had formulas like working in the discount rate for what the future value and the present value of different costs and benefits might be. But you did write it in a clear way. So I'm really glad to hear that people have been open to seeing how it works in practice. I read an op-ed that the two of you wrote uh, when this was first published, and you went through the elements of a complete analysis of a regulatory action. Can you walk us through those four things that you identified there to give our audience a sense of what you have in mind? Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, and this is, uh, you know, both in the manual itself and I think nicely tracks uh, you know, what you see at the federal level um, and, and at the state. So sort of the, the, the first major element is, uh, is identifying the problem. And I think uh, one thing that we do that I think is, is sort of innovative um, in our manual, um, and it is sort of a contrast to what you see in other, uh, other spaces, particularly at the federal level, is um, we really put the focus you know, on that first question. And I think it's, it's really important and it's often um, skipped over uh, in some cases. You know, I think in many instances, agencies assume uh, that because they're authorized to regulate, uh, that means that they definitely should regulate. Um, and it's really, you know, I mean, if you have the authority, that certainly gives you the green light uh, to proceed. Uh, but separate from that, you really should look at what is the problem we're trying to solve, or, or really is there a problem? You know, in many instances, the market itself uh, may have enough protections in place uh, that it's really not necessary for, for the government to step in. Uh, and if it is necessary, then it's also important to take into account what are other regulators doing, uh, what sort of the overall framework uh, within which the state agency is acting. So we really try to focus the attention on that first step as much as possible, the problem identification. Once they've identified a problem, then the second step is to consider the alternatives. Um, unfortunately, I think that too often gets uh, skipped over um, in many instances. Uh, you know, from the work I did at the federal level at ACUS, um, I think what oftentimes happens is, is the agency has a particular approach in mind as to what it wants to do. And then the cost-benefit analysis is basically a way to justify that, to explain, okay, here's why we need to proceed this particular way. So we intentionally wrote it in a way uh, that we encourage agencies not to do that, that they have to consider at least three alternatives. First, uh, whatever alternative they, they had in mind. Uh, second, doing nothing, just leaving the status quo in place. Uh, and then third, at least one different regulatory treatment, either stronger or weaker, um, a different approach than the one they are uh, contemplating. Um, and they're explicitly required to do that on the form that we ask them to fill out. So that's step two. Step three is then with those three alternatives or however many alternatives, you certainly could do more than three, um, analyze the benefits and the cost. Um, and we encourage agencies to do that in a monetized way as much as possible, that uh, they should try to put a dollar value to both the benefits and the cost. And in most cases, that's, that's completely doable. Um, there are, you know, any number of resources, online resources, official reports that agencies can go to to help them identify what are the likely benefits and what are the likely costs. 
Of course, there may be some instances where they can't do that, where it's not quantifiable or monetizable. Uh, we acknowledge that. And if that's the case, then we ask them to at least give a qualitative description. You know, here's the benefits that it's going to create. Here are the possible costs and um, take those into account. Uh, related to that, I should also mention, uh, we asked them to consider some impacts on some specific communities, small businesses, uh, families, uh, and then also local governments um, as part of that, that they consider particularly the costs and the benefits that are created for those communities. Uh, and then the final step, the fourth step, is you select the best alternative, you know, doing that cost-benefit analysis, which one is the most favorable. Um, we encourage them to consider the net benefits, uh, the benefits minus the cost. We don't, of course, require them to choose that particular alternative. There are other factors that may go into it. You know, what's the small business impact, other things, other than net benefits you might want to take into account. Uh, but we do encourage the agencies to look at those net benefits and then justify uh, why they've chosen the alternative that they did. You know, if I, if I can just underscore on the alternative choice there, you know, at the federal level, for every regulation that I looked at as EPA administrator, we looked at alternatives and they mapped out, the staff mapped out, mapped out a number of different alternatives, usually almost always more than three about different courses of action that you could take. Um, here at this, in, in Virginia, at the state level, since they weren't doing the cost, the, the cost benefit analysis, there was no requirement for them to map out alternatives to different of different approaches so by requiring the cost benefit analysis for the first time we're requiring the agencies to look at other options to look at other alternatives and that is so important when you're talking about regulations in the regulatory state um, the, the importance of looking at what are the alternatives whether or not you even need a regulation as we started off with um, but that that requirement which is why i think it's important to require that at every level of government to look at cost-benefit analysis and to look at alternatives is so important in determining what is the you know what is the regulatory outcome that is the you know most desirable that will get the the most benefits as well as the best outcome for the citizens. I thought that was one thing the manual did especially well, not just requiring agencies to come up with net benefits, but then walking through why picking the option, the alternative with the most net benefits might not be the best choice, and then looking at the specific impacts on families, small businesses, and local governments. I thought the manual put that in an incredibly clear way uh, for how to walk through, how to select among those options. I hope that works Thank out. You. And that's um, um, and I thought Reeve did a great job in putting the manual together. Perfect. One specific question I have about that, uh, the manual says in a couple places that you should only limit considerations of costs and benefits to the borders of Virginia. Um, is there ever a time when broader costs or benefits should factor in? Uh, if you know that whatever regulatory choice is going to have the substantial impact outside of Virginia? I suppose yes, um, there the can be, um, but I think that would be discussed in the in the in the regulation itself and the accompanying analysis. But um, what we wanted to try to avoid was, um, you know, taking a, a look at um, 
and, and I'll, I'll just have to I'll go back to my to my environmental energy um, background. You know, so much of the federal level on climate change takes a look at the worldwide um, CO two emissions and worldwide um, impact on temperature. Um, in Virginia, as we're making those decisions, we need to be looking at what is best for Virginia. You you could also um, you know we're we're in, the, we're in the process of permitting the largest wind farm in North America or is, some of the people around here for say in the, in the free world, I think China has one that's larger and that's the only one larger. Um, that does have an impact on, on um, the worldwide climate, of course. But, um, but for most instances, we we're looking at Virginia centric because we're, that's what we, that's what the governor cares about or the people here in Virginia and the opportunities here in Virginia. And he compares the, the Commonwealth of Virginia to other States and particularly for job development and for, providing, you know, the, as, as he says, the best place to live, work, and raise a family. Um, so, you know, by nature, we need to look at what the impact is here in Virginia. And I, I would say, you know, sticking with the energy theme for a minute, um, our, you know, state legislature has done some, some um, has made some bad decisions along those lines. You know, on the, on the automotive side, where they just default to whatever the California standard is, um, instead of making decisions themselves. Um, that should be a decision made here in Virginia. You know, what works in California is not necessarily going to work here in Virginia. And if you want to speed up going to all EV cars, there's a lot of different considerations that need to take, that need to be taken into account. For example, will there be enough charging stations around the state? Will there be even more important enough electricity supply for the EV automobiles and for the, for the state legislature to just say, we're going to follow the California model and the California timeline without taking a look at the specific Virginia requirements or needs is a direction of, of, of duty. Um, they should not be farming out the, the legislative choices to, to another state. That's a great segue into my next question. And I, I do want to point out, building on that the manual uh it's it's very interesting how the manual does have these echoes of some of the federal debates both the the local benefits and costs versus benefits and costs beyond your borders also the the treatment of indirect and direct costs and and the where you try to draw lines uh so that's all very interesting echoes of the federal debates but your last point director wheeler about the experience in other states that's what I want to talk about next. Um, I'm curious if you have a sense of how other states are approaching these sorts of issues and whether uh, they provided any examples for you as you were building this program within the Commonwealth of Virginia. I know in recent years, a few states, including Missouri and others, have, have tried to think creatively about how to, how to deal with the costs and benefits of regulations. But as you said, every state is different and the state government structures are different. So this is one of those places where you could, we really could see what was, you know, for a century has famously been called the laboratories of democracy, the states experimenting. So that's a long way of asking, had you learned anything so far from other states' experiences, or is this one where Virginia is really taking a lead and, and perhaps providing an example for others? Well, when we started this process, we started this process last summer, last summer we did take a look at what all the states are doing in terms of their of regulatory offices and reviewing regulations. Um, and you know, some of the states might surprise you. I, I, Massachusetts has a, has a decent office on this. Um, 
we, we looked at their program. We looked at Indiana. Um, we, we looked at Arizona. Um, you know, just, just this week, we had conversations with a former Missouri official and also someone from Idaho. Um, so, yes, we are trying to learn what other states have done and, you know, want to, to take their, their best practices, but also to make sure that we don't, um, we don't make mistakes that other states have already found out were, were problems. Um, so we are learning, but I think we're also setting an example at the same time. Um, our, right now, all of our regulations and the and guidance documents and the, um, and, and the comment comments for the, in the regulatory process are available on um, Virginia's townhall.virginia.gov website. That website was created in the late 90s. When it was created, it was the first one in the country to do that. Now, our, that website's showing its age and we need to update it. But, you know, it's, it's, it's something that we're building off on. And other states mimicked us for a number of years. And we're hoping that other states will mimic us in particular on our cost impact um, manual. I will just put a, a plug into something that I did at EPA, which was we took all of the EPA guidance documents um, we found 13,000 guidance documents. We eliminated 3,000 and we put all 10,000 remaining guidance documents on a searchable database. So anyone in the country could go online and see um, what guidance documents pertain to their industry or to their jobs or to their communities. Um, previously, you had to actually travel to an EPA office to look at a guidance document if it wasn't on, you know, online by somebody else to see what it was in the guidance document. The Biden administration took down that website within the first month. Um, total lack of transparency I, I, and a total waste of money too. I mean, I don't know why they're afraid of transparency. That is the hallmark of what the governor here in Virginia, Governor Youngkin is trying to do is transparency so that everybody understands the decisions that we're making in our agencies and to make that information available to the public. And for whatever reason, the Biden administration just ran away from that. You know, we gave them a 10,000 document searchable database and they literally dismantled it. Um, that's, that's actually a waste of, of, of government um, resources. Um, and there's been no outcry about that. I'm, I've been surprised that um, people haven't been up in arms and maybe not everybody realized it was there, but it was a very important tool. And we're doing that here in Virginia. And I, and I've worked on transparency issues my entire career. When I started at EPA in 91, I worked on the community right to know act. And I fundamentally believe that everyone has a right to know the information impacting their communities. And you, you don't have to look any further than um, East Palestine, Ohio with the train de derailment. And those people deserve to know what the chemicals were released in that train derailment and what the impact is or potential impact might be on their health, their drinking water and their air quality. Um, it's, you have to have transparency and the government must be transparent. Yeah, for what it's worth, I was a bit surprised too. Definitely disappointed by the Biden administration taking down so much of the guidance. I, I maybe naively thought that those sorts of reforms would be kind of sticky, right? And then once there was transparency, you wouldn't see it rolled back. And so that was a that was a great disappointment. That's that's an entire yes. uh, we could we could do a whole podcast about that too. Um, another question: Obviously, state resources are a little limited. Um, uh, probably in some states more than others and changes from varies from agency to agency. Um, there's always a question of when you impose these sorts of frameworks on state agencies, that they're not going to have 
the resources to comply. Uh, when Reeve was the research director for the Administrative Conference of the United States, he probably had sort of on the tattooed on the inside of his eyelids, the boilerplate, uh, subject to agency resources. Uh, <laughs> agencies are always limited in what they can do. I'm just curious to what extent have, have you heard feedback on on whether th this new framework has been burdensome for Virginia agencies? I gather so far the feedback's been positive. Um, I'm just curious how the agencies have managed to to bring this in without stretching their their their, their own capacity. Um, first of all, you know, there are of course trade-offs. When you require more analysis, there's going to take a little bit more time. But I, I, there's another aspect to Governor Yunkin's approach on this. When we got here, we discovered that there had been regulations waiting in the governor's office for four years um, that were just sitting um, literally on the, the closed portal of Virginia Town Hall, um, of townhall.virginia.gov, um, our, our town hall website. Um, so one of the things that he pledged to do was to speed up the review of regulations. So it was taking on average, and this is predated our administration because we weren't even here that long, on average 241 days for the governor's office to review a regulation. We now have the average, we, our goal is to be within two weeks of reviewing a regulation, and we're at last count about 12 days. So regulations are actually getting through the process at a much faster rate. So there, while there may be a little bit of slowdown as far as the analysis is concerned, I think that slowdown is warranted because you need that analysis. You need to have that cost impact analysis. You need to have that cost benefit data. So, uh, you know, if there's a trade-off here, it's, you know, the agencies are spending a little bit more time in drafting a regulation, but we are processing the regulations at a much faster rate. 241 days versus 12 days is incredible. So um, I would I would underscore everything that Director Wheeler said. Uh, certainly there are trade-offs here. Uh, You won't believe it. It happened one more time. Uh, when we give it one more shot, and we're only going to have a couple more questions, and we'll wrap after that. Um, Reeve, you want to give it one more shot? Sure. Before I do, can you hear us? Is it clear? Can hear you. Yeah, it's okay. Wonderful. Great. Uh, yeah, it crashed for a second. So uh, I would underscore everything that Director Wheeler said. I think that's exactly right, that there are trade-offs. Uh, certainly, we've expedited the process significantly. Uh, and then I think also on the agencies end, you know, yeah, it does, you know, take some additional time. But I think, you know, precisely as Director Wheeler said, that if you're looking at sort of benefit cost analysis of benefit cost analysis itself, I think the benefits outweigh the cost, that there is some major, major value in taking a little bit of additional time uh, to analyze the problem. Uh, and, you know, the few weeks that that may take, I think, pays enormous dividends in terms of getting higher quality, more sophisticated regulations. Uh, one other thing I'd also mention is that, um, you know, I think it'll probably take longer on the front end as agencies are sort of getting up to speed in terms of this new process and how to use the manual. Uh, but I think really, ultimately, as agencies start to internalize this, and especially given that we intentionally designed it in a streamlined way, uh, I think in some ways it, it probably won't add that much time at all. 
In fact, if anything, it's almost a framework, a way of looking at regulatory problems uh, that I think can actually work in a, a very you know expedited way. Uh, so I think that um, you know we've not really imposed a significant additional burden. Uh, I think the benefits clearly outweigh the costs, and I think it's something where you'll start to see more efficiency over time. I just have one last question. And I want to thank you for being generous with your time this afternoon. Changing gears slightly, the executive order that Governor Youngkin issued last summer included a target of reducing regulatory requirements by 25%. And I was wondering if you could walk us through how your office is measuring that goal. Sure. Um, and at first, I'd start off by saying on day one, he issued a, a, an executive order calling for a 25% reduction in the number of regulations. And then over the first few months here in the administration, we talked it over and, and the governor decided instead to go with a 25% reduction in regulatory requirements. And that was actually building off of a pilot that began in the previous administration where they, where they just asked every agency to um, count the number of regulatory requirements, which I think for most agencies was basically going through the regulations and counting how many musts or shalls were in a regulation. Um, we decided for one reason why the 25% number of regulations wasn't feasible or really the best measure. Um, for example, one of our agencies just has one regulation. And they just keep tacking on subparts to that regulation. So, you know, really, you really have to look at the requirements within a given regulation. Um, we are still working on how to count, how to ad adequately count, because we want to make sure that we credit those agencies that are reducing the economic impacts to citizens. Perfect example, our, our cosmetology board reduced the number of hours for um, training for a license to be a cosmetologist from 1,500 to 1,000. That is a reduction in regulatory requirements that you don't you can't just quantify by saying you re reduce the regulatory requirement. We're trying to give it a monet, uh, we're trying to monetize that requirement. Our children's health services reduced or children's um, or ch not health services or children's support services reduced the number of forms that require parents to, um, to have um, the forms notarized. You know, in this day and age, it's actually very hard to find a notary republic. I ran into that problem trying to get a document notarized for my mother in Ohio a couple of years ago. Um, I wasn't a member of the Ohio Bar, and I had a hard time finding an attorney or an office that was willing to notarize a document. So it's reducing those requirements that are actual hardships on families or some new businesses, particularly small businesses, that we want to make sure that we, we credit and then we try to monetize to explain the reduction in the in the requirements that Virginians will have going forward. It, and if I could also add to that, so I think um, the, the structure that Director Wheeler provides, I think we're really uh, being real innovators here. You know, so I've looked at some of the other. Uh, states, you know, several of them have uh, regulatory reductions uh, of 25% or a third or so forth. Uh, some of them just do regulations, others do regulatory requirements. Uh, but I think what we're doing, both looking at the number of requirements, but also as Director Wheeler mentioned, things like reducing the number of hours, uh, that's quite innovative. I don't think uh, really any other state has done that, nor has the federal government done that. The Trump administration, of course, had the two for one and the dollar for dollar regulatory budget. Uh, but looking at sort of both aspects of it simultaneously, 
way. Uh, I think we're the first ones to have done that. Um, so our hope is that, you know, Adam, you mentioned uh, Justice Brandeis's, you know, Laboratories of, of Democracy uh, analogy that we can really be the innovator here. And, you know, as more and more states consider this, we think it's a very sophisticated approach uh, that captures in the most accurate way uh, what the overall regulatory burden is. You know, and something we haven't mentioned so far, I, I want to make sure we do before we, we end the podcast, is that our cost impact analysis doesn't just apply to our regulations, but it, we're, we also require it for our guidance documents. And I'm not aware of any other state that does that. So as of um, the you know, beginning of this year, agencies have to fill out the cost impact analysis um, forms for all guidance documents as well. And as, as you know, both at the federal and state level, so many times agencies are pushing what should be a regulation down to a guidance document. So we wanted to make sure we capture all of the regulatory requirements that impact our citizens. That's really great. Well, one last question for me, and then we'll wrap up. Um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, the, the Gray Center's focused a lot, especially recently, on what federal-minded folks might learn from, from what's happening in the states. We just actually wrapped up a law review symposium that'll be published soon where state justices wrote about what's happening in their states in administrative law and thinking about what federal-minded uh, folks might get from that. Uh, we had actually James Broll of Mercatus wrote a paper a couple of years ago on regulatory budgeting in the states um, with an eye to how that might inform the next stage of regulatory budgeting at the federal level. So my last question is just, what do you think the federal-minded folks might learn from Virginia's experiment so far? This is a moment when there's been a lot of talk about OIRA, the future of OIRA, both among conservatives and libertarians, progressives and liberals. My guess is in the next 20 years, we'll see a lot of reform and modernization at the federal level. Uh, what might we learn at the federal level from what you're doing now at the state? Well, you know, you know, I'm looking at the trends and what's going on in, with the Biden administration. You know, they're rewriting A4, which um, I'm actually very concerned about in the direction that they're headed based upon the direction the White House has given so many different agencies um, to look at, you know, non-economic impacts. You know, there's um, you know, right now Virginia is competing with Maryland for the new FBI um, building. And, you know, just looking at the criteria that we're afraid they might be using, um, for that, um, it, it's it, this administration has um, social engineering at, at its at its heart, and I, I would hate to see OIRA, OMB, um, the A four process um, be turned into a social engineering um, function um, when it's supposed to be an economic function, um, because the you know the agencies themselves are already doing so much social engineering. Um, whether we like it or not, particularly in a democratic administration, um, that somebody has to be there as the gatekeeper to look at the regulations and determine what is the economic impact. Because you can have a lot of um, negative impacts from a regulation, as, as everyone knows, and you can have unintended consequences. And if you don't have a full-fledged economic analysis of a, of a regulation or, in my opinion, the guidance document, which is why we're doing guidance documents, you can have a lot of unintended consequences that are negative to society and the country at large. Um, and if you know the gatekeeper is turned into a social engineering engine um, instead of looking at economic impacts, I, I think that's a real problem going forward. So I would expect, um, I, I would ex you know, if they go that route, which I'm afraid they are, 
I, I would expect the, the next Republican administration to go the other direction. And then, you know, right right now, the cost impact analysis for, by OIRA has been building um, administration after administration has all been building, has been going in the same direction. Republicans, Democrats, including Clinton and Obama, um, expanded upon the types of analysis. And, I, you know, that's been a, a positive, I think, that um, that OIRA over the years has, has gotten more exact in what they look at. And if we're going to go the other direction, then that's that's bad for society and it's going to cause a ping pong effect at the federal level. And I agree completely with Director Wheeler that that's a real concern, that there's been some, some major backtracking. Uh, our hope, though, you know, going forward would be whether, whether in this administration or a subsequent administration. And I think one real innovation about what we're doing, which I would like to see ideally more of at the federal level, is really the comprehensive nature of it. So at the federal level, um, you know, of course, under Executive Order 12866, it's only the most significant regulations, those that are over $100 million in economic impact, that get a full cost-benefit analysis. And even then, as the Mercatus Center, I think, has very uh, nicely shown in their work, even then, you often don't get a full quantification of the benefits and the costs. Um, Jerry Alec, with his report card, uh, demonstrated that. And I think that's a real virtue of our approach is its comprehensiveness. Uh, as Director Whaler mentioned, it's not just regulations, it's also guidance documents. And it's literally every one of those uh, that goes through this process. Of course, the trade-off is, you know, it's much more streamlined. It's, it's probably not as detailed as you see at the federal level. Um, but I think trying to, to, to move the process more in that direction, uh, I think, has some major payoffs. Uh, Stuart Shapiro and Chris Kerrigan have written on this, uh, back at the envelope idea for regulatory impact analysis. Um, and I think if they could replicate some element of that at the federal level, more streamlined analysis that occurs earlier in the process and really allows people to weigh in meaningfully on the regulatory alternatives, uh, I think could be a major, major improvement. Um, so that's what I would like to hopefully see more of, you know, in subsequent administrations. Thanks for sharing that with us. And thank you both for joining us this afternoon and walking us through both the manual and what your office is doing in general. We look forward to seeing what happens as the agencies start implementing it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Adlaw Center. <laughs>